0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Elena Beck for a conversation about the Column of Justinian, a triumphant monument built in the 6th century in Constantinople built as a triumphant column for a Byzantine emperor of the time, Justinian I during his reign, and this monument is considered a tour de force in terms of the engineering and construction practices applied to it. On the episode today, we're going to understand better what it was, how it was built, uh, Roman and Byzantine practices around building triumphant monuments, as many were built in this epoch, just how innovative and ahead of its time was it, and when and why was it eventually demolished. Dr. Beck is Professor of History of Art at DePaul University. She specializes in arts of the medieval Mediterranean world. And she's the author of the monograph, Imagining the Byzantine Past, the Perception of History in the Illustrated Manuscripts of Skylitzes and Manassases. Welcome to the call, Elena.
1: Thank you. It's very nice to be with you, Andrew.
0: Okay, so let's start more broadly. What is the Column of Justinian? So th-
1: what the Column of Justinian was, it's in past tense now so the column was created in the sixth century about 540-543 and it was uh the monument of justinian was taken down after the uh, city of constantinople was conquered by Mm -hmm. the ottomans in 1453 and the column itself was demolished in the 16th century even though the monument suffered like that the memory of the monument lived on into the 17th century Hmm. The Byzantinists had completely forgotten about it and I can talk more about it if you'd like mm-hmm. and it was only rediscovered in the late 19th century because of the very interesting drawing which surfaced in Budapest. So this is the hmm. background.
0: Hmm. So what's the significance because there would have been a lot of busts and statues created right over the years in many parts of the world. What's the significance about this particular column?
1: so i argue in the book that this was the most important um, cross-culturally significant sculpture of the mediterranean world and the reason why it was important was two things it was a gigantic equestrian statue that's one thing but it was not created for justinian justinian took it from his predecessor of uh, the emperor theodosius Hmm. and we can talk more about that but what justinian did which was unique was to place an equestrian statue at the top of a column nobody had done that before Hmm. and so that required several things you have to build the column which is much wider than normally would have been because normally the triumphal columns had a standing imperial figure the figure that's standing on two feet right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you have to create a column which is wider And you have a monument, which is much heavier. So this is, we're talking about something probably about 5,000 kilos lifted very, very high, which means that in terms of engineering, we're looking at heavy engineering, probably the only capabilities that would have been uh, for lifting something that big, that high would be in the military. Hmm. So in terms of sheer scale of the undertaking, it was enormous. And it was placed in direct dialogue with Hagia Sophia. And we know Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, nowadays Istanbul, as the greatest Byzantine church. Mm -hmm. But the uh, column of Justinian was equal at least to it. So it was a direct dialogue between the emperor and his church. And so this was a monument of memory, It was a monument of power, and also a monument of Justinian's arrogance. Because a lot of orthodox um, beholders, the religious Christians, saw this monument as a problem. Because it was the emperor aggrandizing himself.
2: Hmm. But
1: Byzantine emperors associated with this monument as a symbol and status of power, and this became a monument which was transformed into a talisman of Constantinople, this, the monument which would protect the city in perpetuity. And so as the mm-hmm. fate of Constantinople declines towards the 15th century, people start reinterpreting the monument in a different way.
2: Mm.
1: And so the dynamic life of this monument for over a thousand uh, years is fascinating. So from the monument of Justinian's triumph and superiority over his predecessors, it becomes a monument that is embraced by the rulers. Absolute fascination for international audiences. People as far away as 3,000 kilometers to the west, 2,000 kilometers to the north, and 2,000 kilometers to the east are talking about it. And it makes such an impression that people who have never been to Constantinople, uh, discussing it and describing it and representing it. So this is the kind of reach of a monument and also the kind of biography of a monument that I've been dealing with.
0: Hmm. How large are we talking about in terms of circumference and height?
1: So uh, these are all very tricky questions because the thing does not no longer exist. Mm-hmm so the height of the column would have been at least 50 meters so if you think nowadays about all the competition about um uh skyscrapers right uh, who has the tallest uh we have that very thing happening with triumphal columns so the first uh triumphal column is the column of trajan in rome mm-hmm. and that one stood about 38 meters the mm. second one is marcus aurelius just a few meters taller then we get to Constantinople, and because uh, Constantinople is a new city in direct competition with old Rome, the emperors in Constantinople are trying very deliberately to build bigger, better, taller, create greater prestige. So it's 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 an ego trip, right? Mm. So we have three emperors: um, Constantine, the founder of Constantinople. Um, Theodosius, uh, in the late 4th century, who establishes a dynasty, and Justinian, who really create this grand city. Constantine is competing with Rome, Theodosius is competing with uh, Constantine, and Justinian is competing with Theodosius. Hmm and each one is trying to create Constantinople into their own city. Mm. So, the way you do it is by building tall columns. So, Constantine's column is the first one, and it's created of this purple, very dense stone and very large uh, blocks. And that one stands about 37 meters, right about now.
2: Okay.
1: Um, The next column is the column of Theodosius, which was taller. And we know it from various sources which say that was taller. And I skip over a couple of others because they are less interesting for us. And Justinian built the biggest church. He puts his forum, so his triumphal space, his square of uh, his memory, identity, and power ahead of Constantine's. He literally jumps the queue because what Constantine had established, his forum is going to be the first one. And everybody built behind him. Justinian, by building a Sophia right by the imperial palace and rebuilding it, and putting his column right by that church, creates his forum as the first and foremost in the city. And so he builds the tallest column, Hmm. probably 50 meters, maybe slightly taller. It's a masonry column rather than solid marble blocks. And we know that because we have very critical contemporary of Justinians, Procopius, uh, who mm-hmm. is a very famous um, late antique historian, and who hated Justinian. Mm. Uh, there is no way of uh, describing it in any other ways. Uh, his uh, secret history of Justinian's rule is just absolutely salacious and scandalous mm-hmm. um, about uh, the emperor. The our information about Column comes from Procopius. And Procopius downplays Justinian's accomplishments because he really doesn't like Justinian. Hmm. And so because of that, in many ways, uh, people have dismissed the accomplishment that the column was. So it's innovative in the use of masonry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It has an enormous plinth at the top, so solid two solid stone blocks for to put the statue on. And we know that from uh, later travelers, uh, people who come in from Western Europe, people who come in from what are the territories nowadays, Russia, talk about an enormous block of stone. And that stone could have possibly been up to 15, 15, at least 15 feet long, probably longer. And so that's where we get measurements, but the trouble is measurements are culturally constructed. People sometimes measure things in elbows, literally, and sometimes the their units of measurement uh, can can be multiple things. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the height and the weight um, and the scale become problematic. Now the sculpture itself was probably at least almost double the size of what Marcus Aurelius in Rome is. So Marcus Aurelius on the, on the horse, uh, which is uh, still stands in Rome, is 4.24 meters. And this uh, Justinian's uh, monument would have been over seven meters. Mm. So we are talking about very, very complicated bronze project. And it's complicated for several reasons. Um, if, if we just have a horse, the points of weight and stability for the monument would be fairly simple uh, to think about. Like mm-hmm. uh, In pretty much every city, there is an equestrian monument. And it's usually, sometimes it's four points, uh, so through the hooves, right? It's uh, anchored on the um, plinth. Or the tail is used to also anchor the animal. Mm-hmm. So that's fairly easy. But when you put a figure, human figure, on top of it, the weight distribution really changes. And so the statue has to be supported and there is a, would be very complex calculus on how you distribute the weight points so that the monument doesn't crack. An interesting thing happens with this one. We know that the plinth on which the statue stood cracked sometime probably in the 13th century. Okay. And so they, the Byzantines, would have built supports, metal supports to keep the horse balanced and to keep the rider on it the other thing that happened with this monument is that corrosion and uh, they then did not understand the nature causation of corrosion Mm -hmm. but because the sea air in the constantinople istanbul is um highly corrosive the fact um the very uh, noticeable thing happened, and that is um, monuments like this become lighter because uh, bronze, the weight of the metal becomes lighter. And so the statue was the emperor one hand forward, kind of protecting the city, Mm -hmm. or gesture of speech, uh, standard imperial or authoritarian uh, gesture. And then the other hand, he held a giant orb, Mm. the orb of the world. And this thing starts falling down in the 14th century because of corrosion. Hmm. And the emperors panic because they associate the orb with a Byzant- Byzantine power. Mm-hmm. And so they're worried that as the orb keeps falling, the power will diminish. Yeah, so this becomes a whole focal point in the 14th, 15th centuries.
2: Hmm.
0: If the... Okay, so the masonry. So the, the the rocks are fifteen feet, give or take, in, in length. The the statue is fifty meters, give give or take. We're talking the sixth century. Mm-hmm. Engineering and construction wise, how how do they how how did they get rocks on top of each other to go fifty meters? How how was this assembled vertically?
1: Okay, uh, that's a. Ah, you're asking the questions to which we would like to have answers, <laughs> so, uh, so these are really good questions, we have a um, couple of engineering manuals surviving from the Roman period, so um, and these engineering manuals uh, which were originally written in Greek, used by the Romans and uh, used in the Byzantine Empire, so we get a little bit of sense of how they did things. Okay. You can do two things, uh, you can do the scaffolding mm-hmm. and try to weights on ropes or for the heavier things, you would have almost like a pulley like system. It's called the capstan mm-hmm. with ropes where several people are turning it and it's being lifted. Okay. And finally, when it gets really tall, you can use something like these are called uh, siege, um, Uh, for for, for the purposes of sieges you build literally a tower and Mm -hmm. some of them were as tall as 35 meters in the ancient world. Mm. So you bring in a siege tower and using that you then add things at the top. Mm. So the question you ask is a very interesting one because uh, Justinian's column is the last great column and probably the most audacious one and after that people literally lose um Mm. ability uh both in terms of engineering and memory of how to do things and so this monument becomes the monument of enchantment because a lot of people look at it and say we don't know how they put it on top this is amazing Mm. i do not comprehend how this was done and this is how you create awe and power over your viewer by having the kind of technology that is no longer comprehensible. And so this is one of the things we're dealing with Mm -hmm. this this monument is how this was done. Um, Because probably the same engineers who worked on the idea Sophia constructed the column. So in terms of masonry, in terms of uh, uses of uh, binding agents, possibly molten lead, uh, was used to secure parts of the building. But you really have to do kind of a forensic analysis of texts. Um, and most texts have their own interests and their own agency, what they're talking about. So putting together multiple sources of information to try to glean a little bit mm-hmm. of the process. And process was something I was very interested in.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When in the Mediterranean world did the, when and where, did the next uh, figure get assembled that would be comparable in some way to this uh, column?
1: Ah, uh-huh, good question. So um, we're talking about 17th century.
0: Okay, so quite a ways after.
1: Yeah, over a thousand years. And the statue, this was the equestrian statue of Louis the 14th which used to stand in Paris. So, interesting things happen. In the 15th century, in Renaissance Italy, precisely because of the Renaissance, there is a great interest again in this triumphal um, statuary, equestrian statuary. And um, this is just a side note here. Um, When the Roman past is rediscovered, and the um, renaissance scholars antiquarians get all excited about not just written past but visual past as an object as a form of memory and authentic evidence of the past they get very uh, into big discussions about equestrian monuments can an equestrian monument exist in the um, political system of a republic or is it only in the political system of an empire, and so this becomes a very big discussion. Hmm. And this discussion means that rulers who see themselves successors to the Roman tradition want equestrian monuments. And so Leonardo da Vinci was planning to create an enormous equestrian monument where the horse alone would have been over seven meters tall. Okay, that he had a design
0: comparable in size to to this one.
1: It's, it's, it's a very interesting issue because in order to create a monument that big, and if it's going to be single casting of something like this, you basically have to invent new technology for casting something that enormous. And Leonardo appears to have developed a new technology, which was rediscovered in the 17th century mm-hmm. when the monument of Louis XIV, was created but leonardo was thwarted in his efforts because the ruler of milan uh, could not spare the metal because it was a multi-ton effort and instead used it for weapons so alas
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah because they were they were in uh war with uh france at the time right
1: exactly
0: yeah so you mentioned that uh there was a uh previous column uh theodosius's and that um to a large extent um one of the goals it's um postulated that uh justinian had was to usurp that one in size is that one is that one still around
1: what what happened to that one So the only one that is still around is the column of Constantine. Mm -hmm. That one is still standing, and this is where we can fairly securely talk about size and construction. Uh, The column of Theodosius was uh, destroyed in the Ottoman period. Now it all depends uh, who is talking about the process of destruction, from the perspective of European travelers, it was a figural column. So there were bands of design on that, like on the column of Trajan, for example. And um, so that column does not uh, survive. It was destroyed and it was destroyed because uh, it was um, an inconvenient memory in the Ottoman period already. But also these monuments uh, suffer from uh, Uh, neglect and also uh istanbul is an earthquake zone Mm -hmm. and so these monuments really uh suffer the that's what why the justinian's column engineering is so remarkable it was so stable for Hmm. over a thousand years this is pretty astonishing and because nobody has done anything like this it's about calculating the uh endurance of the material, the scale, the weight, all of these things are important. Now, in terms of the memory of Theodosius, Theodosius is establishing a dynasty. So he has his column, the, at the top of a column stands his statue. And by the column, we have two gigantic equestrian statues. And it is one of those statues that Justinian takes. Mm. Um, and he has it moved through the main street, to and then placed atop of his uh, column. Now, the taking of a remarkable monument of a pre- predecessor is a standard operating procedure. Uh, this is what you do already in the Roman period. Uh, this is by this is the form of appreciation of the great workmanship of the past, but also this is the form of claiming glory of somebody else and making it your own and we have it in the roman period already evidence from the second century on very easy but this also interestingly means identity of an emperor as represented in a statue is changeable very easily it's location based so if the statue of Theodosius, let's say, is put in the place of Justinian's glory, it becomes the statue of Justinian. And the memory changes and the identity changes. The reason why Justinian probably took one of those two, in addition to the fact that they were absolutely enormous, I I think it was also practical. In addition to Hmm. erasing the memories of Theodosian legacy, if the lifting of the first one failed, experimental because nobody had done it before, you have a second one as the opportunity so you will not you know uh, Mm. lose face the trouble with the opening of that column of Justinian so this this happens in about the year 542 43 so Agia Sophia is uh, finished uh, about eight or seven or eight years earlier and usually emperors when they did their forum their column is the last thing to be done so this is part of deliberate design but when it's done and it's supposed to be this glorious monument. Mm -hmm. Plague has hit Constantinople, so we have huge mortality rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Byzantines lost dreadfully to the Persians, and so what used to be the monument of uh, triumph for the contemporaries um, is nothing but the monument of hubris Mm -hmm. and vanity. And so in the subsequent centuries, these are the two strands of thinking. It's either great triumph, superiority, awesomeness, and glory, mm. or hubris and vanity, and so this becomes a litmus test on Justinian, and also litmus test on the interests and ideologies of the monument beholders.
0: When was uh, Theodosius's um, monument torn down by the Ottomans? So
1: uh, the sixth. 16- century is really the key date, and we have very small fragments uh, of that sc- uh, column surviving. Mm-hmm. That's how we know it was figural. A um, couple of them are in the Archaeological Museum in Istanbul, and a couple of them are embedded in a building uh, which, which uh, ab- would have abutted the forum. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then... Um... Eventually uh, Justinian's column is uh, torn us down as well in that in that century um, It um, was this yeah when when what yeah when 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 is it believed that his column was was torn down?
1: So here's a here are two points uh, important so the Monument as in the uh, bronze horseman of Just, uh, of Justinian
2: mm-hmm.
1: is taken down shortly after 1453 mm-hmm. And the reason that is done is because that monument had been the talisman of a city, and by the 15th century, it was believed that it would protect the city against the Ottomans. Mm. And when Mehmed II takes Constantinople, he leaves most monuments in place. But this is, in terms of sculptural monuments, that's the one that is pulled down. So this also means that there is a clear understanding of its power and association with the past tradition. But not only that, um, Mehmed does the search for the head of the last emperor, Byzantine emperor. Mm -hmm. And we have a number of sources um, converging in the analysis of what happens. The head that is purported to be the head of the last Byzantine emperor Mm -hmm. is nailed to that column. So we have the... Taking power away of the symbolic capital and symbolic focal point Mm -hmm. of the city. So that's one thing. The other thing, why is why, and another reason why this is happening? The column of Justinian stands in close proximity to the southwestern corner of Hagia Sophia. Mehmed. converts Hagia Sophia into a mosque, as imperial mosque, as a first act. Mm-hmm. So the column and the monument literally cast a shadow onto Hagia Sophia. Okay. And it's a figural monument in the uh, context of Muslim uh, worship. This would be complicated to begin with. Mm-hmm. So we have the inconvenient imperial past. We have Hagia Sophia being transformed into a mosque and narratively speaking, there is a very strong, almost propaganda-like campaign to make Hagia Sophia acceptable as a Muslim space of worship. And so Mehmet sacrifices this monument in order to make transformation of Hagia Sophia possible mm-hmm. because a lot of his supporters are resistant. They're resistant to making Constantinople the new Ottoman capital. They're resistant to Hagia Sophia. There is a form of resistance because they have already an established mm-hmm. cultural space. And so, coming into Constantinople is challenging in that way. Another thing, uh, in the first minaret of Hagia Sophia, which is also uh, created by Mehmed, um, is placed on the, at the southwestern side of the building, at the top. Mm-hmm. And so the column and the minaret literally clash, if you will. And if you're looking at the long view of the building, it is a reminder of a different identity and a different narrative framing. And that's in part why the column is finally pulled down uh, around 1520.
0: So to clarify, it's there's records that show that it was pulled down in two different stages.
1: Yes, the monument first. And then the column
0: itself, is second. Okay. The monument, shortly after the fall of Constantinople by the Ottomans. Right. And then the monument, the, the column, rather, is in the 16th century. That's right. Okay. Why do you think that uh, Constantinople's, um, or Constantine, rather, his statue uh, remained?
1: So. Constantine's uh, statue rem, um, remained in place uh, into the 11th century. Okay. Uh, the, so one of the things that happens is Constantine's statue is uh, brought down by the winds, a ferocious winds. So Constantinople mm-hmm. can have, in addition to earth, it, it's a paradise. But in addition to earthquakes, very strong winds and corrosion. Other than that, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of monuments fall down because of corrosion and when Constantine's statue finally falls it's a dramatic event and the head of that statue it appears to be was saved and placed in the imperial palace for record keeping or as a memory what was placed at the top of a column was a large cross and so that became known as the Column of the Cross.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that sty- that column was uh, repaired um, in the 12th century also. Mm-hmm. So the other thing we have to imagine, when you repair a column, in with the Column of Justinian, we know that they built pyramidal-like support structure in order to be able to ascend to the top. So your uh, support structure can be as expensive or more expensive as the repairs. And the reason why Justinian statue probably stood back to the horse stability of elements, at least four or five points versus when it's a statue, uh, as a statue that stands on it's just two feet. So uh, probably two or three points. Plus, the statue of Constantine was complicated for particularly for Christian viewers because it was completely nude statue. Mm. And so uh, people uh, talked around that inconvenient issue. Mm.
0: Because of the fall of Constantinople, did the engineering knowledge behind it and all the feats that comes with that, was that... that thought to be lost and you know went up into the ether or is there any evidence that those feats in literature or teachings was passed on and influenced other uh, monuments in the middle ages Mm -hmm. or or early modern ages by then?
1: Right. So very interesting question. So I'll give you three examples. Mm -hmm. So Justinian's column was such a powerful model that uh, his successor, mm-hmm. his nephew, wanted mm-hmm. to build an enormous column to rival it. Uh, the Resistance in the population was so big that he never completed it and his successor in turn dismantled it. Okay. So there was that attempt to continue with that grand gesture and grand tradition and it dissipated. So in the late 6th century, uh, the Byzantine Empire starts undergoing quite significant economic crisis Mm -hmm. um there are all sorts of things invasions from the north uh justinian had overspent tremendously um all sorts of things happen so that's one thing and so part of it there is a retrenchment and rebalancing and highly defensive rebalancing happens for a couple of centuries Mm -hmm. now in the eighth um, particularly the 8th century, in terms of the engineering and other things, we have very limited knowledge. In the 9th century, the monument of Justinian speaks, because people believe in this period that it has quite literally animate power. And it speaks and scares the emperor by the name of Theophilos. In the mid ninth century. He is a heroic general, mm-hmm. he fights um, the Abbasids. The Abbasids are the Muslim empire that is trying to conquer Constantinople mm-hmm. several times, but so theophilos is fairly, fairly effective, very popular, but he's an iconoclast. So his memory is very complicated in the Byzantine legacy. Okay. What happens in the ninth century, so around about 840, the headgear of Justinian's statue falls down. And it is a very big peacock, bronze peacock feathered crown. Mm -hmm. And Theophilos had adopted that as uh, his own headgear of victory. And so what we have, we have a very interesting source, um, so far neglected source, uh, by the name of Lagathi. And that source tells us about that the emperor got really worried when the headgear fell, okay. and they did not know how to put it back, hmm. so this means that the loss of knowledge, right? The oh, statue it okay. means that the column had not been scaled. They did ever uh, the text is fairly brief, but everybody was worried until a very skillful craftsman was found who proposed the restoration. And the restoration, when something is follows. The, they shot an arrow from somewhere on the roof of Hagia Sophia and the arrow with a rope attached to it. Mm-hmm. The arrow then between the legs of a horse, so it was basically anchored by the legs of the horse. Okay. That person scaled the rope, so we can imagine tightrope walking basically, <laughs> with that crown, put the crown back. And the emperor was so happy he gave that uh, man 100 gold coins. So this gives us a sense couple of things, right? That the monument had to be restored, it had to be complete. They had no idea how to do it mm-hmm. and it took an acrobatic feat to put it back together. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, th- this, this element. Now I, uh, one more element, Renaissance period. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because for the Byzantines, this column and this particular monument is the talisman which will protect the empire. And the apple keeps falling, the orb. They call it the apple by the 14th, 15th century. They keep building scaffolding. They keep building scaffolding, which means people have, at at least people in power can ascend to see the monument. Mm -hmm. And we have a number of Renaissance viewers who are talking about this monument, talking how remarkable it is, Mm -hmm. talking how astonishing this accomplishment is. Mm -hmm. And because they behold it up close and they have a direct engagement with it, what happens, they don't know how to create something like this in Rome, but what they do is intellectual appropriation. So the monument inspires them so much that they start imagining that in old Rome, there must have been an equestrian monument on the column, on the column as tall or taller, <laughs> because after all, old Rome from the Renaissance perspective is far superior to Constantinople. Mm. So we have that intellectual rivalry and takeover. But uh, this is this is not a, nothing like this is accomplished um, in terms of the column itself until the 16th century when popes in Rome start deciding that they really would like to uh, have some columns.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: What a fascinating and energizing conversation, Elena. What, over the years, you've studied a lot of things in the Mediterranean um, uh, basin, but what uh has captured your attention for so many years to understand this particular topic?
1: Ah! Uh. Well, this is a very uh, this this is a very nice question because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things is uh, how do we get into something that we do, mm-hmm. uh, and why do we do these things? Mm-hmm. So, with this particular monument, it's uh, scholars have literally forgotten about, it. and um, the reason they forgot about it is the father of Byzantine studies by the name of Ducange, who worked for Louis the mm-hmm. Fourteenth, um, chose to represent Constantinople from a 15th century drawing, Italian drawing, which did not have that monument, that it, it was done by the time the monument had fallen, uh, excuse me, had, was removed. And so Byzantinists subsequently pretty much forgot about it. So So the monument was not on my radar until I was looking at the 14th century Bulgarian manuscript in the Vatican. Okay. and in that 14th century manuscript created for a Bulgarian ruler there is an image for the reign of Justinian which has the horseman but the text has says absolutely nothing about it <laughs> and this is the whole book project started with a simple question of why did bulgarians represent this monument and what did it mean to them because the text says nothing the original byzantine text about uh, on which this manuscript is based sa- says nothing and so i started pulling these different threads and in the process i found that the monument is represented on russian icons it entered the crusader cultural imagination it's in french uh, 12th century um, let's call them novels, romances. Mm-hmm. It's in 14th century romances, like Travels of Sir John Mandeville, who never who who never traveled to Constantinople, but talks about the monument.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's on Renaissance wedding chests, and so when you you realize the crumbs, oh, it's even in the Ottoman um, divination manuscript from the early 17th century. So. I think I was also lucky and looking in these different fields and just saying okay I'm going to go learn about you know 16th, 17th century um, Ottoman talismanic manuscripts or something like this. Mm -hmm. It's been an enormously enriching experience but also a very curious journey when all of a sudden you turn around and you see it and they say ah it's there it's in plain sight nobody noticed it and so that's been a lot of fun.
0: Oh yeah just piecing all that together, the way you describe that, right? It's been spoken about a lot, almost maybe directly in some cases, but almost has this feel of indirect speaking about. Um, and, uh, and then you, you know, you and, you know, doing the work to connect all the dots together.
1: And, and, that's, that has, and that, that's where the biography part comes in. When uh, what you also realize is the, it, in a way, this book is about mm-hmm. the Byzantine history. Uh, throughout its entire period, because it's a perception of the empire and perception of the important points in the life of the empire, but also how others are looking upon it. Uh, from the, Because I have a chapter, for example, on uh, medieval Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, horseman, a talismanic horseman placed at the ta- tallest point of the city of Baghdad as a competition to the one in Constantinople, hmm. because rivalries were not only militarily, they were intellectually and in the, in the arts. So um, fi- hmm. finding that multiple audiences connect with it, but also connect with it in their own way. Crusaders captured Constantinople and they destroyed all sorts of monuments, but they kept that one. And that is because they re-identified him as Heraclius, the proto-crusader, their own role model. And they preserve that one while they could destroy other things so it's that engagement with byzantium Hmm. but very selective very calculated and in terms that speaks to the beholder's own systems of values and that's what i found absolutely fascinating with this money
0: sounds like an amazing journey that you had it's a lot of fun chatting with you today elena thanks for joining the show
1: many thanks andrew i really enjoyed it
0: it was great having Elena on the show today. If you'd like to pick up her monograph, Imagining the Byzantine Past, the Perception of History, and the Illustrated Manuscripts of Skylitzes and Manassas, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes at the Ithacabound.com uh, subpage that's associated to this episode. Uh, Elena and everyone listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now.